right, praise God. Let's go to the book of Jude tonight. The book of Jude. Mm-hmm. The book of Jude. All right. The book of Jude. The book of Jude is the last book before Revelation. And um, it's only got 25 verses in it. But I tell you what, for a, for a letter that has, or a book that just has one chapter, it sure, he sure, he knows how to pack a punch in this short little letter, does Jude. And uh, there's a lot in here. I don't know how much we'll get through tonight, but I just thought, man, this book's only got 25 verses. And I said, these guys like to stay here till 11 o'clock. Lord, I'm sure I'll get through this tonight. No, I'm taking it easy. I know you guys have been working hard in the pantry and giving out that benevolence to the community. And we really appreciate that. Remember, if you know somebody that can help out in there, we need some volunteers and some different people to help. See Brother Dan. Sister Karen, they'll, uh, they'll get you plugged in straight away, and, um, and that's good stuff. All right, here we go. Book of Jude, verse 1. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and the preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So we got here Jude writing calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, we remember that uh, when they, we see the word servant in the letters of the New Testament, that it's the uh, dulios or bondservant. In other words, they're, um, you might have heard us say before that, you know, the custom was in, under the Jewish law that once a servant was set free, um, if he wanted to continue and stay on at the master's, at his, at master's house out of love, not out of debt, but he wanted to stay there as a love offering, um, they would take an awe and they would pierce their ear. They would punch their ear with a hole. And everybody knew that that servant or that you know, slave, whatever you want to call it, they weren't there because they were paying off a debt, but they were there because they loved their master so much that they decided to stay. And so Jude, like Paul, he's using the same language there. You know, he's saying we're not here out of debt, but out of love, because we know we we are a bond servant or we're a slave to Jesus. Amen. And we're sold out to do the master's will and not our own. And he says he's the brother of James. Now, this is not James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder. Remember those guys, James and John, the son of Zebedee. Well, James, as you know, in Acts, he was the one that was the first martyr in the church. He, he got uh, his head um, cut off because they were there was a bit of an uprising. And when um, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, that's when he went and captured Peter. And they remember, they put Peter in jail. And that's when Peter had that great escape. Um, and the angel came in and and opened up the prison doors, amen, and they walked right out. And uh, so, so this James here is the brother of Jesus. And this James he's talking about is the same James that wrote the epistle of James. 
So Jude here is Jesus's brother. And um, I guess some people could call it his half brother if you wanted to be um, completely right in the term that you would use, because this was Joseph and Mary's son. And Joseph and Mary had children. No matter what the Catholic Church tries to teach, Mary had bore children. Um, you know, and, you know, the New Testament gives record of that faithfully. And there was, um, you know, there was that story when his family came to Jesus because they thought he was losing his mind. And then uh, they said, hey, your brothers and sisters, they're looking for you. And he did keep he put it straight to him. He said, who are my brothers and sisters? He says, is it my family, the ones that do the will of God? And so he had, um, you know, he had half brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph had children. And after James, you know, after the Lord, they didn't really believe Jesus was the Messiah. You know, it must have been tough. But I love that one verse where it says in the very beginning when Jesus started ministering, he says he did not commit himself to men because he knew what was in man. You see, because he's creator. You know, Colossians teaches us that through Jesus, all things were created. Amen. So I'm sure he wasn't offended when his brothers rejected him. But when he rose from the dead, they realized this is this Messiah. Amen. And it's interesting that Jude doesn't say Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ. He doesn't try to, you know, drop a little name drop there that they're family or that they were related. You know, he 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 re, you know, Jesus is Lord. Amen. And Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ. And he lets us know he's the brother of James. So he also is writing to them that are sanctified by God, the father. I love that preserved in Jesus Christ. Yes. You know, I've been really the word preserved or preservation has really been on my heart. I can't get enough of this, uh, this word preserved. Go with me real quick. Keep your finger there. Let's go to Psalm 12 for a second. Psalm 12. Say amen when you're there. All right. Psalm 12. Um, and let's read, let's start out at, uh, let's go to verse 6. Verse 6, Psalms 12, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, Amen. as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The words of the Lord are pure words, pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, and thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, 
but my words will never pass away. Amen. Amen. God has promised to keep and preserve his words. That's why I don't really get into a lot of controversy or try to get upset when people try to argue that that the Bible has been changed or that we don't have an accurate record of the scriptures because God has promised from the beginning that he's going to preserve his word. Amen. And I believe he is faithful to keep it. Jesus said he'd do it. The psalmist here said the Lord would do it. All through the Bible, God has always promised to leave his people a record, a testimony of his word. And he's been able to do it for us, too. And when I think about purification, you know, the Bible is a mirror. It's a reflection of who we're to be. And, you know, in the Old Testament, they had what? The laver, didn't they? The laver was a was a hey, sister. The laver was a uh, was a big basin of water that the priest would come in and they would wash before they went into the next phase of the worship. And when Jesus was having a foot wash, he was washing the disciples' feet. And Peter said, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. He thought that that was an insult, that the Lord was going to wash his feet. And, and then Jesus said, you need to be washed. And he said, well, man, wash all of me then, Lord. And, and he said, no, Peter, you've already been cleansed by the word. But your hands, your feet need to be washed. And the feet need to be washed because we have been cleansed by the word. But we walk in the earth, don't we? And when we walk in the earth, we get dirty. We don't even mean to. It's not even sometimes can be a conscious thing. It's just because we're still in the world and the presence of sin is still in the earth. Okay, the penalty of sin has been dealt with. God's given us the power over sin through his Holy Spirit. But the presence of sin still is in the earth today. All right. There's still a curse on the earth. This body is still growing old. It's still decaying. But Jesus will come one day and he will remove the presence of sin. So while we're in the earth, we need to be cleansed. We need to be washed. And that's what that labor represented to the priest. They, it was the labor. It was the, it was a, they would wash themselves before they went in. And also, the New Testament talks about the Word of God being a mirror that we can see ourselves. And when I read that scripture about the silver being tried, you know, there was a story of a guy, you might have heard me say this before, he was purifying the silver. And he'd turn the heat up and the dross would come up to the top, you know, that nasty stuff. And he'd take his skimmer and he'd skin that off and he'd throw it away. And then he'd heat that fire up a little bit more and he'd start to burn that silver even more. And some more dross would come up and he'd skim it off the top. And then he'd turn that fire up more. And his apprentice said, man, you know, how much can that silver take? How hot are you going to burn it? And when do you know it's time to stop. And he turned to the apprentice and he said, when I can see the reflection of my face in that silver, that I know it's been purified enough. Wow. And that's what the Lord does with us in his word. 
God is looking to see his reflection in us. And the only way that can really happen is through the scriptures. Amen. It's purified seven times. It's tried and true. And that's what he wants to do with us. So back over to Jude then. We are preserved. Um, there's an assurance for the believer through the work of Christ alone received by faith. He's in possession of salvation in which he will be eternally kept. And this assurance rests upon the scripture's promise to those who believe. You know, I like what my dad always told me. He said, son, I believe in security, eternal security for the believer, not the make believer. Amen. I mean, we're not walking on a tightrope with God. His blood is too powerful. Now, we don't need to argue or maybe, you know, debate whether or not, you know, salvation can be lost. There's many good brothers and sisters that believe that you can stop believing that you can turn away from believing Jesus Christ as your as your salvation. And, um, you know, you can do that. Perhaps there are some believe that once you got saved, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. You can go out and and, you know, rob a bank. And if, if you in, in totally reject the Lord and what the Lord will end up doing is he'll end up smiting you um, and taking you out of this earth. And, um, you know, but he'll still go to heaven. You know, there's there's people that believe that way. You know, I always find that there is a little bit of both in the word of God. You know, the word of God is balanced when it comes to that kind of stuff. My thing is, is. Let's not talk about how close we can get to the edge before we fall off. Let's stay off the cliff and stay in the pasture. Amen. Because in the pasture, there is no edge. Just stay in the pasture, man. And that'll solve everything. Stay off the cliff. Stay in the pasture. Amen. Praise God. So now. Verse two, mercy unto you in peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Earnestly contend for the faith. You know, hanging on to what has been given to us and entrusted to us is no easy task. It takes determination. There are people in this room today that have been saved for over 30 years. But I'm telling you right now, that 30 years had some contending for the things that they believed. You know, you don't serve Christ faithfully for 30, 40, 50 years and not go through trials that make you have to contend for the faith. That make you have to grip hard because I'm telling you, everything will try to pull us away from what we believe. Our family will try to pull us away from what we believe. Our finances will try to pull us away from what we believe. Our our enemies will try to pull us away from what we believe. You know, our own fears will try to pull us away from what we believe. 
Many things will come against us and they will try to rip what we've received out of our hands. You know, Jesus was very clear, especially about family members and people like that. He said, look, he said, I haven't come to bring a, 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 a peace treaty. I've come with a sword and it will divide families. It will cut families in half. That's not God's will, but he used a, a, a very harsh reality there to make a strong point. There are times, man, where Jesus must come first. Amen. He must come first. Amen. You know, I'm, I'm preaching to my daughters to this right now. You know, Jesus must come first before you worry about your marriages or what boyfriends you have or who you're going to. You, I told Beth, I said, you got to be content to be comfortable in your own skin, to be happy being alone with your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. He must come first. Because if we don't know who we are in Christ, Amen. we'll be no good to the person that God brings along our side. Amen. Amen. And so that's why what I mean is, is the, the lordship of Christ and to serve him must be the priority. And I want to clarify something. I was listening back to the tape on Sunday and I don't I, I, I hope I, I didn't think I made I wasn't clear when I heard myself speaking to myself. I was talking about works and worship. And then I was talking about how worship, uh, you know, I didn't want them to get confused about worship, like praise and worship with music, you know, worshiping God and a worship service. And that's what I was trying. And, and, and I so I used the word worship a lot. And there were times where I was talking about worship, which meant praise and worship, singing unto the Lord. And then there was times where I was talking about the act of worship, the worship service, when we come together on the Lord's Day. Amen. And so when I was saying that we can't have, we can't confuse our works and our worship. Okay. They must be a clear division between works and worship. Because a lot of times, especially new believers, man, they're so on fire for, for the, the love of God in their hearts is they'll just start doing things for God. They'll just start working, 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 doing this, doing that, painting this, painting that, fixing this, fixing that, cooking this, cooking that, cleaning that. And in that and doing all the works, you forget about the worship service. You forget about the actual act of worship coming to him and just being with him, sitting in his presence, sitting at his feet, hearing his word, hearing the scriptures. You know, Paul told Timothy, he said, don't neglect the public reading of the scriptures. That's what he said. So so part of the act of war, the worship service, part of the worship service is reading the scriptures. You know, yeah, we can't neglect it. So we got to make sure that the worship, our worship to God in the service where we all come together has priority over our works. The works are good, but I'm telling you, you will burn out if you do not have a more of a balance of your worship for God than your works for God. Amen. It, you won't you won't last. You, you won't last. I've seen them crash and burn. 
I haven't been saved very long, but I've been saved enough to see over the years good people with good intentions, sincere hearts. They love God, but they just somehow or another get that, like Rick said, the Mary Martha just kind of swaps over. You know, Martha meant to do well. Her intentions were good, but she just got kind of caught up. And you know what the enemy always tries to trap us with? Well, who will do it if I don't? <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. It'll get done. And if you have that attitude, you're probably keeping somebody from getting in there when they should be because they're like, they're doing it. But if you say, you know, I need this, the, the God will get it done. You can't, you can't have that heart with your works. Well, because that's how Martha was, huh? Well, you know, look at her. And I'm the only one doing anything. And then it's not service. It's not, it's not counted as, as, as an offering to the Lord. Because you're doing it not unto him, you're doing it because nobody else is going to do it. And that's the wrong motive. Amen. Praise God. So, so he says here then, um, he said, you must contend for the faith. We must hold it. Because here's why, verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before, this is powerful, who were before of old, ordained to this condemnation. That's powerful. God is not surprised when people come in and try to preach a different gospel where Paul said, but there is no different gospel or there's no, they try to preach another gospel. And he says, there is no other. There's only one gospel, amen. Only one gospel of the grace of God anyway. There's only one gospel of grace. So it's no surprise to God when people come in and start, you know, changing things. Because it says right here, they were ordained to this condemnation from days of old. You know, people have always been twisting God's word. All the way from the beginning, as we saw on Sunday, the serpent's tongue still works today like it worked back there in chapter 3. God is always... You know, he's not surprised. That's why he's promised to preserve his word so that we can do like Jesus did. I thought that was powerful Sunday. It is written, man. We got to use what is written for our sword. Amen. We got to use his sword. Now, he says, now look at this. Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Wow. Lasciviousness. What's your say there? Lewdness. What's lascivious mean? Where's my phone at? Well, lewdness means total debauchery, unashamed indecency, unbridled lust, unrestrained depravity. Wow. Sometimes, man, you, when you get these, uh, get this King James Bible here, man, you got to look these words up. I, I, you might have heard me say before, y'all need to download the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. It's the most anointed dictionary on planet Earth. It's, it doesn't take very much. doesn't take much at all, actually. So I'm going to look up and see what Mr. Webster had to say for lasciviousness. L-A-S-C. Thank you. Here we go. Yeah, you pretty much had it there. An irregular indulgence. An, an irregular indulgence. A tendency to excite lust. And promote irregular indulgences. So he's saying here then, 
that they have turned the grace, these ungodly men, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. In other words, this is what people are afraid of when you preach the real grace of God. You might have heard this. Well, you're going to give them a license to sin. If you preach the grace of God too hard, they're going to think that they can just go out and fornicate and go into, you know, drinking and drugging and all that kind of stuff because, oh, it's the grace of God, brother. Well, you can kind of see that in today's society, but I can tell you what, that's not the grace of God. Because the grace of God, like Pastor taught so very well, the grace of God is the enabling power to live holy. So if somebody is saying, hey, brother, it's okay if I can, you know, I can sleep around. It's the grace of God. Well, no, that ain't the grace of God, because if that was the grace of God, if the grace of God was working in your life, you'd be you'd be walking in righteousness there. You would be empowered by God to do what is right there according to his word. So, you know, the grace of God. Brother Lee. Hey, Lee. Rose, help him. Let's get let's get Lee back in the Bible study, because I want I want Brother Shane to hear the word of God tonight. All right, Shane, just I want you to hear the word tonight. OK, we'll have some ministry time afterwards. Thanks. Now. So we said here, so we see that that's not grace. OK, that's not grace. That's not uh, that's kind of just taking the word and misusing it to do what they want or to ease their conscience. It says, and they deny, verse 4, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here in church history, it wasn't long after the church was established that the Gnostics came in and they tried to preach the humanity of Jesus Christ. And, and you know, Jesus was human. Okay, he was, he was he did. He was. Uh, he did have a body, but he was God and man at the same time. Amen. Okay, and they were trying to preach that he was only a human, that he wasn't divine. And boy, the world religions—they love that because they've got their Joseph Smiths. They have their, uh, you know, um, what's his name, Muhammad. They have their Hira Krishnas. They have their human. Prophets, and they like it when you can boil down Jesus to him just being a man. And that's what the one world religion is founded on, that we all agree that all of our holy prophets are all here to do the same thing together. And that's the lie, man. That's the lie of the coexistence movement. Look, it's cool looking bumper sticker. But the coexistence movement's not going to save a man or a woman from their sin. All right. And that's why, you know, we don't have to like, you know, get angry or start having a mob in front of somebody's house. Or, you know, if you see somebody at the at the shopping mart that has a uh, one of those, you don't you don't have to get mad at them, you know, because they just are in ignorance, just like Paul was in ignorance at one time. You know, Paul, the apostle was in ignorance at one time. They just are ignorant. And what you need is, is you need to just have 
the, the, the scriptures in your heart and what you say to them. And that's why we got those Romans road tracks posted all over. If you don't have any, see Harold, he's got tons of them. And you just walk them through the scriptures that, hey, the coexistent movement isn't right because if you follow that way, we're still dead in our sins. And if we're still dead in our sins, then we deserve judgment, don't we? So then he goes on in verse five. He said, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. All right. That's the key. So God's not going to be any different with the people in this age as he was in the past age. He took all of the people out of Egypt, right? But not all of the people that came out of Egypt went into Canaan. Then they didn't. They didn't. Exactly. And why didn't they go in? It says right there. Because they believed not. So remember, we're contending to the faith that we will not fall into this state where we don't believe anymore. That's what Jude is trying to say here. Because listen, we can get... I know people, you know people, you know people that first started to believe, but then they bought into some rubbish and they ended up thinking, well, maybe that's the way I should go. And they lost what they believed in. All right. It's a scary thing. It's a scary thing. We know when those guys attacked Aaron, the sons of Korah, they had a problem with who God had designated to be the priest. He had designated them to be one of their leaders and they begin to backbite him and they begin to kind of murmur and, and say, you know, we, we're all Levites too. Korah said, he's like, man, I got sons just like Aaron does. How come I'm, how come we can't perform those duties? Where aren't we good enough too?" And God took the whole earth and he opened up a, a, a hole, a, a giant sinkhole and swallowed those guys up. He swallowed them up. And the other thing, after he swallowed them up, you guys have known the uh, Ark of the Covenant. We got the Aaron's rod that budded, right? I find this interesting. Aaron's rod that budded was a sign and a wonder to the, to the rest of the people to realize this is my rod of authority here. Who's, whose staff does this belong to? It belonged to Aaron. Did any of the other staffs grow flowers out of them after they'd been chopped off the tree? No. In other words, he was saying, life is in this staff. Life is in the person who this staff belongs to. Life is in that person because I am the one that has designated them. You see, and that's what the whole Aaron's rod that budded was all about. It was God showing who was in charge. You know, so he, so he had the manna, he had his provision, he had his law, and he had his leadership. That's what he preserved in the, that's what he preserved in the, uh, in the ark. Who his leader was, what he expects of his creation, and his provision for his creation. Amen? What a great testimony. The ark of the covenant, man. You know, and I always take that as a as a as a personal promise. I always say, Lord, I know because I'm a child of God. First of all, you're always going to provide for me. 
Second of all, you're always going to have your word preserved for me. You're going to always leave me with your word, your commandments. What is right? What is wrong? And lastly, Lord, you're always going to have a leader over me. You're always going to have somebody to guide and, 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 and pastor me or, you know, a leader, a lead me. I got to be careful when I say shepherd me because we talked about that the other week about the shepherding movement, which is an awful thing. But, you know, God wants people to be led. Amen. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed to call Pastor Lonnie my leader, my pastor, because God has promised me that I will always have a pastor. I'll always have somebody who will lead me and guide me. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And, um, and so, you know, you may or may not agree with that, but I just, for me personally, I take great comfort in that. So here's the thing then. He destroyed those people. All right, so you have the Israelites there that he's talking about. They did not believe. Bad things happened to them. In verse 6, then he says, how about these guys, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved into everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. All right. So we see there we got a set of angels that left their first estate. And we see this story in Genesis 6 where it says that they came down and they had intimate relationships with, with humans and great giants came out of this relationship. It's quite a freaky story, really. We don't have a lot of time to get into that, but all you got to do is YouTube it, and man, you will get a, a, a lot of stuff, some good stuff, some crazy stuff. But obviously, this is an event that's happened. Judah's bringing it up again. And so we have these group of angels that um, it says they left their first estate. They left who they were and became something else. And what did God do with them? He's locked them up into everlasting chains under darkness. All right. Now, if I think I got this right, I think this is called uh, Tarsus, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that's where Peter in Second Peter 2, 4 um, it talks about that a little bit. So he's reserved them unto judgment. Then look at seven, it says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. That's an interesting way that the King James puts that in. They go after strange flesh. All right. They... Um, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. All right. Well, just like Korah, just like the angels, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, excuse me, refuse to believe the witness that God has put there for them. All right. And they've gone after strange flesh. That could be all kinds of things. Well, what's strange flesh? Well, we talked about that one night in here. Leviticus 19 is a beautiful chapter that gives you the what sexual relationships are illegal in God's law. All right. There's a few of them in there. It's worth checking out. All right. 
Now, the world that we live in, and a lot of you guys know this, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this tonight, but we're living in a world right now where they're trying to say strange flesh is okay. Strange flesh. You know, strange flesh. And, uh, I, man, I remember one time when I was installing uh, home improvement windows, vinyl windows, I was working this one guy named Jerry Kittle, the meanest man I ever met in my life. I'd be three stories up on a ladder pulling a big steel crank out. Oh my. I'm outside. He's inside in the cozy, warm room. And man, I think I, I see my life passing before me. I, I think I'm going to die on this job, man. And I got this big steel crank out. And you guys know them things are heavy. I'm like, when this three-pane thing pops out of its hold what, and it comes on top of me, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be in a jumbled mess at the floor. So I would put my dirty fingers inside the window seal to hold myself. Man, he would take his hammer. He'd knock my fingers because he's, he's like he didn't want the, the, me dirtying up their walls, you see. And he was a mean guy, man. He's a mean guy. So he would, he would, he would knock my fingers off. the. Off, I was trying to hold on for dear life, and he'd pop my fingers with his hammer. Get your fingers off that window. Get your fingers off that window. I was like, my gosh, this guy's going to kill me, man. But he didn't. I'm here today, praise God. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but anyway, this guy was crazy. And he would say, he would say this. He'd say, ah, I'm going down to the archery tournament. He was a bow hunter. He said, I'm going down there to bow hunt, and I'm going to get me some strange flesh. That's what he would say. I'm going to get me some strange flesh. And he would go down. And in other words, he was like, he's going to cheat on his wife. He's going to find some strange is what he called it. Something strange. And when I saw that in the scripture, I remember him saying that to me as a, as a young man, how he would go down there and get some strange flesh. So, you know, you sleeping around with someone who's not your wife, that's strange flesh, man. And there's a, there, God is going to exercise vengeance on a society that keeps preaching that this type of lifestyle is correct. Whatever the strange flesh may be, you know, it's going to happen. And we, gotta, we got to be, as a church... We don't have to, I, man, I, I've got kids on my bus. Their moms are, are, are into strange flesh. You can see them when they pick them up, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't have an attitude towards them. And I'm not coming in with a big picket sign, you know, or I'm not saying Johnny can't ride my bus because you guys are experiencing strange flesh together, you know. But I'll tell you what. When it comes to the way I'm going to live my life and the way I'm going to teach my family and my children and the way I'm going to live, I'm not going to let that mentality creep in. I'm not going to let it come on my TV. I'm not going to let it come in my phone. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to let it come in the music. You know, you're not going to come in and try to chip away with your real will and grace hostile takeover and try to get me to think that strange flesh is okay. Because it's not okay. And the Bible is clear about that. So that's all I got to say on that. So, but these guys in verse 4, these guys were preaching that. Who he was talking about. He said, certain men have come in. They've come in to corrupt the word, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. There is a movement of people that are preaching a gospel that is telling people that this is okay. That this is okay. 
You know, there's a whole, there's a whole group of people that actually believe that Jesus went after strange flesh. And they actually try to say that. It's ludicrous what you find, what people are saying to believe. Can you just write that down for a minute, Lord? We'll get right back to it. It's ludicrous. Now, verse 8. So likewise, also, these filthy dreamers, they defile the flesh. I love this, man. He called them filthy dreamers. What a description. They defile the flesh, they despise dominion, and they speak evil of dignities. There it is again. They despise dominion and they speak evil of dignities. Remember we saw that in Peter the other day? One of the things that just like Korah was, they, they, taught, they backbite their leaders. They backbite their leaders, whether that be their, their you know, I mean, just to give, whether you're talking bad about Dan. I mean, Dan, Dan runs, he dances over the kitchen area. And they, that's his ministry. Pastors put him in charge of that, him and his wife. They have authority back there in that kitchen. Hope you don't mind me using the example while you're sitting here. But they, that, that's their authority. And if Dan comes up to you and says, I'm not really sure you should be doing that right now. You might want to listen to him. You, 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 got, you, you, you should listen to him, first of all. Because, one, he has been delegated that authority. Number two, the guy works hard, man. Yeah. Works hard. Amen. Him and his wife going to Matt. They don't, they don't just walk in here at 5 o'clock and just act like they know everything. There's been a whole lot of stuff through the week that's been going down to get to where we are that day. A whole lot of stuff that nobody sees. But more importantly... The fact is it's been delegated. The authority there has been delegated. And so, you know, we can't be backbiting and say, oh, man, you know, I, I could run this place better. Or your cell group leader or, or your worship leader or, you know, any, any kind of leader in the church. Pastor. Husband. Your local governments, man. Your national governments. Hey, I didn't vote for... The donkey? I'm talking about the campaign symbol. I wasn't dissing, wasn't dissing Obama there. I promise, I wasn't. I didn't vote blue. But when blue's in office, I'm not going to tear them down and call them names. It's not right. It's not Christian. That's what it is. It's not Christian. And look, like I told them when England, when I was in England, they said... Oh, here comes the American. And I let him know very clearly. Hey, I'll tell you right now, I'm American, but I'm Christian first. I'm American second. Amen. And you guys that were born here in America, when you were born again, you became Christian first and you became American second. Yeah. We got to get that priority straight. And, you know, you can take your American values and stuff and you can you can hang on to them. But it's not Christian to run down our president or our governors or those that are in charge of us yeah, when they're in a party or they're doing things that we don't like, we're instructed to pray for them. Amen. Bible says right here, they just, the people that do this are the people like chapter four, people that are not preaching the gospel. The, that's one of the ways that you can see whether or not they're actually walking in the truth of the gospel or not yeah. by the way they treat their leaders. 
If you've got people that are always backbiting and trying to prove that they can do a better job at it, chances are they're not really in it for the real gospel. They're in it for a lasciviousness and for filthy lucre's sake, as we saw the other day. They're in it for the money and they're in it for the pleasure. And you can tell that they're in it by the way they treat their leadership. That's one of the signs. Now, because listen to this. This is a great example Jude points out here. So we're talking about people talking about, you know, speaking bad about people in charge. And in nine, verse 9, it says, Michael the archangel, when they contended with the devil, when, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He did not bring against him a railing accusation but said, the Lord rebuked thee. Let me read that again, because I don't think I phrased that properly. It says, now Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. So you might know the story when Moses never entered the promised land. But Moses died in Moab. God took him up on a mountain. He showed him where they were going but he was not able to enter. And then Moses died. And obviously he must have sent Michael the archangel to go bury Moses' body or do something with it anyway. And he said, when Michael went down there, he must have been ready to take Moses' body. And I guess the devil was there and they're just having like a little, a little tug of war, like, you know. And I'm like, this is a crazy story. They got the devil and Michael are, you know, they're, they're contending for this guy's body, man. But when they were playing tug of war with Moses' body, he said he did not bring against him a rallying accusation. In other words, he didn't call him a name. He didn't even say, I rebuke thee. He said, the Lord rebuke thee. He put the Lord between him and the devil. Amen. And sometimes I think that's just a really good pattern for a believer to follow. Amen. You know, I, I'm a little leery of always running around calling the devil names. Right. You know, I don't think, you know. I don't think that's, you know, I hear, I've, I've heard it in Pentecost, man. I mean, you ever go to, uh, man, an old-time Pentecost prayer meeting, man? I mean, it's like they're kicking the devil down the street, calling him every name in the book. It's crazy. I said, man, we come here to pray to Jesus, or we come here to talk to the devil tonight. I mean, which one are we doing here? And so, you know, it's a good practice for the believer to keep Jesus between you and the devil. Amen. Because, you know, Michael the archangel kind of set a pattern there for us. Even arguing over Moses' body. It's amazing what's in this little book of Jude, isn't it? So even Michael the archangel did not bring a accusation, a rallying accusation, but said the Lord rebuked thee. So if that was the pattern, all the more then, that's how we should exercise self-control when we're talking about our leadership, amen? Whether it be in, um, in our spiritual lives, our political lives, our educational lives. I'm guilty. I've, I've talked bad about principles that my kids have had or teachers, and I'm sorry for that. I just repent publicly. I should stop doing that.
It's not good. It's not good for me to run down the administrators of my school, whether I'm, whether I'm happy with them or not. There's ways to address those kind of things instead of just bringing a rallying accusation against them in front of my kids. Amen. So he says then in verse uh, 10, for these speak evil of those things which they know not. That's powerful. But what they know only naturally. They speak about things that they know not. A lot of times you'll find people that are being critical. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. They're just following some rumor mill that, that's come down the pike and they don't even have the facts. Amen. You know, they don't even they don't even know. Um, it's amazing how stories can be started about people. And it says they only know things naturally. But God wants us to know each other in the spirit, doesn't he? They only can go by what they see with their physical eye. Jude calls them brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, verse 11. For they have gone into the way of Cain. And they have greedily, and they've run greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. And they have perished in the gainsaying of Kor or Korah. All right, so there's the three categories there. The way of Cain, we saw Sunday, the way of Cain despises the blood. Tries to take on his own righteousness. Tries to, in his prideful way, you know, find acceptance through his own works. All right. The heir of Balaam. Um, the heir of Balaam was the reasoning from natural morality and seeing that the evil in Israel um, was that God must curse them. And what he said was, as you guys know, the story of, of, of Balaam, most of you do probably, is, you know, he was paid. He was a prophet and he was paid to curse God's people. But every time he went to go curse them, blessing came out. So, I mean, that's pretty wild, huh? I mean, that shows you the gift of prophecy that we were talking about last week. You know, here he is, the prophet. He's trying to curse them. And every time he gets ready to open his mouth, a blessing comes out. Well, it drove this Gentile king mad because he's paying good money and he's not getting what he's paid for. So he says, look, I'm tried. I cannot I cannot curse these guys. He says, but they can curse. They can bring a curse upon themselves. And I'll tell you how to do it. Take your women. And put them in. Really skimpy outfits and bring them down into the pasture there where they're all camping out. And he says, and when they mingle with each other. He says they'll defile themselves with with your with your with your women, he says, and that will bring the curse of God on their life. And so so what the heir of Balaam there is, is the heir of Balaam is teaching. That it's OK or or bringing in a mixture of this strange flesh concept that we're talking about. All right. And, you know, Revelation talks about this in the in the church letters. Jesus talked about this to the church. So we have we have, you know, this this heir of Balaam is a teaching that says that this is OK. 
And that's why, and you'll see this, the doctrine of Balaam, it's called all over the, all over the Bible. And then he says, and they did it for reward and the gainsaying of Korah. The gainsaying. That's a good King James word. Gainsaying. Let's look that up real quick. We're almost done here. Gainsaying. Gainsaying is contradictory or denying or opposing. A gainsayer. You ever meet somebody like that? You're having a conversation with them and you, well, they're always you ever met somebody who's the one up champion? You, anybody ever met a one up champion? No matter what you're doing, they've always got one better. They always got one better story to tell. They always got one better. I've been personally responsible for this on The one up champion, man. So no matter what you do, they've always got something. And not only that, but and not only that. But, you know, it's a gainsayer, man. You know, there's somebody that, you know, is, can never just be in agreement with you. They either got to be against what you're saying or they got to have something better than what you're saying. You know, that's what's called a gainsayer. And Rick's in trouble tonight. Yes, come on. I can already see Laura giving him the glare. So the game, but praise God, he's been washed in the blood of Jesus and he's not going to run into a sinkhole tonight when he goes home. Now... Gainsaying of Korah. So it's interesting, you know, these are neat little phrases that will probably, you know, you know, we got the way of Cain, we got the heir of Balaam, and we got the gainsaying of Korah, you know. And these are, you know, we see this in our church lives. We see it in our families' lives. And this, I'm going to be honest with you. People are saying, man, it's in our White House. But let me tell you something. It started in our church house before it started in our White House. Okay. The Bible says, let the judgment of God start at the house of God. That's where it starts. And, you know, we have to change the church house if we're going to change anything else, you know. Uh, my house, church house, and then we'll talk about the White House. So, you know, and then lastly, last verse, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Oh, man, that's powerful. Feeding themselves without fear. In other words, you're at the dinner table with somebody. You're eating together. They're sitting right next to you saying, pass the salt, please. And last night they were chewing your head off to somebody about something that you could be doing better. The Bible says that's without fear. People like that have no fear. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'd have it very, and I, there's a lot of, there's some people in this room I admire who have this character, a good positive character. It's hard for them to be around people that they can't stand. It's, in other words, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way. In other words, they can't fake it. They can't put on a smile and say, pass the salt, when there is something about that individual that is like, you know what I'm saying? You know, that's actually kind of a good quality because at least you're being real. These guys will give you the smile, but then when you leave the room and they get in a private area, they'll just shred your back up. And, um, you know, and that's these type of people he's talking about here. It's crazy. They had this. See, they had this in the early church. This is not a, a new thing. 
And nothing new. They were dealing with this kind of stuff back in the day. And so he said, they're, they're, and then also I love this other illustration. These illustrations are amazing. He says, they're clouds without water. They're clouds without water. Carried about of winds. In other words, back in those days in, the, in, 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 in Israel, man, they would go through long periods of drought. And then the clouds would blow in and there'd be such hope. Oh, man, we're going to get some rain. The crops aren't going to die. We're going to actually have some food on the table because, look, here comes the clouds. They're bringing rain and the clouds would come. We're bringing rain. Oh, they just went by. Nope, there's no rain. I thought there was going to be some rain. But, you know, it's like what happened there? Clouds without rain. Oh, come on, everybody. Come on over here. We're going to everybody's going to get a word. We're going to have a move of God in this place. We're going to see great signs and wonders, great miracles. Here comes the cloud. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> nothing happened, man. You made all these promises. You said the cloud was going to bring rain. The cloud come. It left. And the only thing it took was dollar signs with it. He promised all this stuff. It came. You said you were going to. And then it just kind of went. And boy, haven't we seen that through church history over and over. Hey, it's nothing new, guys. We may have electronics. We may have different platforms that the clouds without rain operate in. But they had clouds without rain when they didn't have TV. Amen. They had clouds without rain when they had no television because it's something that has been there from the beginning. Isn't that what it said in verse 4? It says these guys have been ordained to condemnation from the beginning. And they will reap a condemnation. So clouds without rain, making these big grandiose promises. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then all of a sudden they come and go and then they're gone. It's like, man, where's all them things they said was going to do and going to happen? Clouds without rain. I just think about this as a farmer and my kids need this harvest. My family needs to eat. And I see them clouds coming and I think they're going to bring rain. It must have been so hard for that cloud to come up, all that hope to be built up and for it to just pass by and not, and not do anything. Just a passing cloud. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead and plucked up by the roots. Trees whose fruits wither without fruit, twice dead. What's twice dead mean? Remember that old saying? You born once, you die twice. You born twice, you die once. Amen? Twice dead. They're going to they're physically die and they're going to spiritually die. Amen? These people. Raging weaves of sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of dark forever.